right. Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're really glad that you're here with us, especially if you're a visitor with us this morning. And many of you will know that we've been looking at a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it's a sermon that Jesus gave early on in his ministry. And it's a sermon that's meant to paint a picture of what it looks like to follow him. Jesus came in order to establish a new community. He came in order to establish a community that is centered on love for God and love for one another. A community that is countercultural. And Jesus is describing in some detail the values and the priorities of this new community in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were to ask someone on the side of the street, just pull them aside and ask them what characteristics they value in a person, you'd likely hear many of the same characteristics articulated. In our culture, the people that we tend to value and respect are those who are aggressive, those who are assertive, people who are tough, those who are self-assured, those who don't get pushed around, those who can make things happen. That's what we respect. That's what we value. Those are the kind of qualities our culture believes lead to the good life. These are the kind of people that we want to be in many ways. Yet, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a completely different set of characteristics that are meant to lead us to what we would call the good and the beautiful life. Jesus is giving us a different way altogether. And this morning, we come to a passage where Jesus paints a picture of a disciple that the world looks at and doesn't understand. The world looks at the picture that Jesus paints, the characteristics that he lays out this morning. They look at this picture and they shake their head. They can't believe it. What Jesus is calling, calling his followers to in this passage goes against every fiber of our being. It goes against the grain of what our culture values and respects. Yet this command that Jesus gives is arguably the preeminent or most important command that he gives in all the Sermon on the Mount. It encapsulates so much of Christ's teaching, and it's the way to the beautiful life, even though it feels so foreign to each one of us. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5. It's printed for you in your bulletin, beginning in verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he wants us to know him and he loves us. And so let me pray for us before we look at it together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is a light unto our path. Thank you for your word and the way that it points us to Jesus and his goodness and his grace in our lives. And we pray this morning that we would see his way of life and that it would be beautiful in our sight. 
and that your spirit would come and empower us to live as this new community that Jesus wants us to be. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if these words have ever come out of your mouth. That didn't go like I expected. That didn't go like I expected. We've all been in situations where our expectations of how things are going to be don't meet up with the reality that we actually experience. And I wonder when the last time was that you experienced this gap, this gap between your expectations and reality, this gap between the ideal and the reality. I've experienced many instances where I can envision amazing things. Where I've got this awesome vision for what it's going to look like. Maybe it's a vacation or a date night. But when it comes time to implement my plans, the reality proves to be much harder than I thought. The reality is nothing like the ideal. Learning to play an instrument is a perfect example of this mentality. If you've ever aspired to play the guitar, then you know the idea of playing the guitar is amazing. Maybe you envision playing your favorite songs, impressing people with your skill, looking awesome in front of large groups of people. I hear that's what people want to play the guitar for. What an ideal. Who wouldn't want that, right? But the problem is that you've got to practice a lot. You've got to put in long hours. You've got to build up calluses on your fingertips. You've got to learn new chords. You've got to train your fingers. You fail and you restart over and over again. The ideal and the actual practice are two completely different things. The ideal is different than the reality. Some of us experience this mentality when it comes to holidays, Thanksgiving or Christmas with our families. We've got this ideal in our minds of family around the dinner table, laughing and connecting, enjoying one another, and then maybe breaking out the board games and enjoying one another late into the night as we dig deeper and share life more deeply. However, if you're like me, and it's not everybody, oftentimes the reality is never like what we envision. There's always screaming kids and burnt casserole and the awkward conversation over topics of disagreement and the old hurts that resurface after all the small talk is done. The ideal is different than the reality. The words we just read in the Gospel of Matthew are some of the most famous in all the Bible. Even if you've never attended church in your life, you've likely heard these words spoken. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. And what do you think of those commands? If you're anything like me, you hear them and think, what an ideal picture of what life could look like. But you know that the ideal is different than the reality that we oftentimes experience. We can buy into the idea of being non-defensive people, but the reality is that we're oftentimes defensive people. You and I can love the idea of loving everyone, but the reality is, is it's much easier to love those that love us back. You and I can really be attracted to living in such a way that emulates God, that follows him and his perfect perfect commands, but oftentimes following his call to maturity is hard. These commands that come out of Jesus' mouth are both beautiful and they're unsettling. They're beautiful because they paint a picture of a whole human life, of what we wish we could be. And they're unsettling because we realize that we fall way short of the ideal that Jesus speaks of here. We know we fail in these areas on a daily basis. So what exactly is Jesus calling his followers to in this passage? Why is it that this ideal never seems to become a reality in our lives? 
How are you and I supposed to process this teaching and move forward in actually living out what Jesus hopes for us in this passage? Well, we're going to look at these questions this morning in light of this beautiful and unsettling teaching. And first, we're going to look at the call or the ideal. Okay, the ideal. What exactly is Jesus calling us to in this passage? Well, to get a grasp on what he wants from me and you, you've got to understand a bit about the culture of the day. Jesus, like he has throughout the Sermon on the Mount, begins by highlighting the accepted teaching in the day in verse 38. It says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this command is found three times, three different times in the Old Testament, and it was meant to put a stop on wild revenge. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth promoted justice. It kept people um, from going wild with revenge. It made sure that the punishment fit the crime. And Jesus comes and he takes this good command and he reorients us to a proper understanding of what it means to live the beautiful life. He says, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one. Jesus wants his new community to keep this new command that he's giving them, one of non-retaliation. He wants a people who do not resist evil. And the word resist in verse 39 is a legal term that literally means don't try to get even with or don't try to pay back. Jesus is basically saying, don't assert your rights against an evil person. If someone comes and they do you wrong, don't repay that person with another wrong. He's telling his followers, or he's calling them to non-retaliation. He's teaching them how to be peacemakers in practice. One of the Beatitudes. But this is really hard. Because as we mentioned earlier, it goes against every grain of our natural instincts and every grain of this world and what they expect from us. I love how Frederick Bruner puts it in his commentary on this passage. You can see his quote at the beginning of your worship folder. He says this, Our immediate reaction to ill treatment from an evil one will be get even or pay back. But Jesus' counsel, on the contrary, is don't. Be more creative surprise him. In short, be a Christian. Look, to grasp the magnitude of Jesus's teaching here, it requires knowing a bit about the culture and the practices of the day. So I want you to buckle up for a minute and go along with me as we take ourselves back to first century Palestine really quickly to understand this passage. After giving a new interpretation, Jesus moves into four different illustrations of what this would practically look like in the life of a first century citizen uh, of Israel. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, this is crazier than it looks on the surface because being slapped on the right cheek by a man who was likely right-handed in that day means that it would have been a backhanded slap. And slapping took on a different connotation than it normally does for us in our culture today. This would have been a deep offense to the honor of a Middle Eastern man. It would have been humiliating. You could liken it to someone spitting in someone else's face in our culture. And Jesus comes and he asks his followers to receive this humiliation and to offer the left cheek as well. Jesus is commanding neither fight nor flight. He is coming and he's giving us a third way altogether. He says, stay right there and do something surprising. Stay right there and, 
engage with a nonviolent response. It's the kind of surprising and effective action you've seen in history, especially in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, turning the other cheek, living the good life by not retaliating when somebody dishonors you. Next, Jesus uses the language from the law court, saying, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, you need to understand that clothing was valuable in that culture. Most people only had a pair of shoes, a tunic, and a cloak, and that was it. People would actually use their cloaks at night to keep themselves warm in bed. In fact, no one had a right to sue someone else for their cloak in this culture. It was a protected garment. It was off limits in a sense. But Jesus encourages his followers to go beyond expectations here. If they want your tunic, he says, give them your cloak too. Of course, Jesus isn't asking people to go without clothes. Just like turning the other cheek, he's getting the point across with with a really vivid illustration. He's saying Christians are countercultural when they allow their honor to be slighted without seeking revenge. Next, Jesus uses an everyday illustration that his listeners would have experienced in their lives. Remember, the Jewish people were in subjection to the Romans at the time that Jesus is teaching here. And Roman soldiers were actually allowed to commandeer the Jewish people to carry their equipment if they saw them on the road. This is what happens to Simon of Cyrene later on in the Gospels when he's forced to carry the cross of Christ, remember? Well, this would have been humiliating for the Jesus, J- Jewish people. It would have been a stark reminder that they were controlled by a ruling nation. The Romans were allowed to force Jews to carry their equipment for 1,000 paces, what Jesus refers to as a mile in verse 41. And in the face of this humiliation and this subjection, Jesus comes and he encourages his followers to go an extra mile, to do more than required. And in this way, you're living the beautiful life. You're living a life characterized by love. Lastly, Jesus appeals to the Jewish Jewish people's sense of generosity. In verse 42, Jesus encourages his followers to give to those who are in need and to let others use your stuff if they need it. And we normally immediately think of money when it comes to this command. But notice that Jesus does not mention that term at all. He wants us to be generous with all that we have. Our money for sure, but also our time and our energy and our friendship and our resources. Jesus in this passage isn't coming and calling his followers to be weak. He isn't calling his followers to be pushovers, which it might seem like he is. But he's calling us to stop asserting our personal rights. He's calling for a radical undefensiveness about us as his people. He's banning personal retaliation. And this is important. He's saying, don't get even. And it's important to recognize that he's speaking specifically of our personal relationships, how we relate to one another in everyday life. There is a place for justice. The Bible talks about that time and time again. And that place is in the hands of the state or the legal courts. 
But you and I are called to give up our rights when it comes to personal relationships, to our everyday interactions with other people, to the way that we're slighted on a daily basis. After all, we're a group of people that believes evil is one day going to fully and finally get its due. We aren't qualified to administer that justice. God is the one who's going to repay. Vengeance is his, not ours. And so we're called not to fight back. Don't worry about protecting your personal honor. Talk about a hard teaching for people like you and me. Reminded of when the University of Tennessee hired their football coach a few years back, and he's been fired this past year, but they hired him a few years back. And UT hired a guy named Butch Jones from the University of Cincinnati. And the University of Tennessee had approached several other, other people, other coaches uh, for the job, and they offered them the job, and they rejected the job before they finally offered the job to Butch Jones, and he accepted the job. And one of the first press conferences that Coach Jones did when he got to Knoxville, one of the reporters raised their hands and asked him, Coach Jones, how does it feel to know that you weren't UT's first choice for head coach? Wow. You can imagine being in Coach Jones' uh, seat with a question like that. You could likely imagine certain responses that he could have given. How dare you ask a question like that? Let me list out my resume. Let me tell you why I'm qualified to be here to lead this program in a winning tradition. And most would have expected Coach Jones to defend himself after a question like that. But I love his response. He simply smiled and said, I wasn't my wife's first choice either. Love it. It's funny, but he illustrates what non-defensiveness looks like pretty well in that moment. I mean, refusing to assert his personal rights to get even to defend his personal honor. Jesus moves on from addressing passive non-retaliation in verses 38 to 42, and he moves and encourages active love from his followers in verses 43 to 48. Basically, he's saying, it's not enough that you refuse to retaliate, You've also got to actively pursue your enemies. You've got to love and pray for those who've done you harm, who've made your life miserable, those who you'd rather see get what they deserve. A while back, I asked my wife, Rachel, who her enemies were. And she responded, sometimes you are. And it changes. It changes depending on who's rubbing against you at the time. It's right in line with this passage. The term enemies in this passage literally means someone with whom you're at enmity with or in opposition to. Jesus here is calling us to love not only the people that we get along with naturally, everyone does that. He's calling us to love those we find ourselves opposing, to love those who naturally draw forth hostility from us. Jesus gives us a reason for loving our enemies in verse 45. And it's so that we might be like our Father in heaven, who shows love for those who are righteous and unrighteous. He cares for his enemies and his friends. And by loving our enemies, we actually become mature. We begin to demonstrate the family likeness as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. So this is the ideal. It's the call that Jesus wants from his followers. And it culminates in verse 48 with perfection. It says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the picture of the whole life that Jesus paints for his followers. Now you know that these commands run completely contrary to our natural inclinations and desires. 
You and I have a tendency to defend ourselves when we're attacked, to retaliate when somebody offends us, to assert our rights. We're Americans after all. And you and I have a tendency to show favoritism, to love those that love us, to associate with those kind of people that we like and get along with. And the ideal presented in this passage is so far from what you and I normally experience in life that it almost seems fanciful. Man, how nice, Jesus. It sounds so great here. But it seems far-fetched that we would ever be able to act and to love like this. And I want to spend just a few minutes highlighting who you and I are called to love and how you and I are called to give up our rights on a daily basis. And as I highlight these things, it's going to become obvious that our tendency is nothing like what Jesus commands. Jesus calls us to give up our rights, to quit defending. And so the question for us is, where do you insist on your rights? Where do you find yourself becoming defensive? Protecting your honor and your reputation. I think we've got to look at the mundane, okay? There might be times when we're called to extravagant non-retaliation, but normally we're living in the nine to five, Monday to Friday, everyday relationships. And so maybe it's your family. You come home after a long day of work and you're tired. You've already put in a full day and you walk in to what could be described as chaos many days of the week. And we could say, I'm done. It's time to relax. I've put in my time. It's time to kick my feet back and be served a little bit. Or we could walk the second mile. Maybe it's a friend who demands lots of your time. Maybe they're going through a rough season in life and you've already given them your emotional energy and you're ready to say enough. I'm not going to take another phone call. I'm sending it to voicemail. It's time for me to pull back and to care for myself. Or you could give them your cloak as well. Or maybe it's a coworker who drives you crazy. Someone who makes work feel like a competition. And you could find ways to correct them when they're wrong and outshine them in certain areas so that you get credit and honor, or you could turn the other cheek. Look, we're called to be a people who give up our rights, and we're also called to be a people who actively love our enemies. Now, you and I most likely don't have enemies that persecute us physically. The people that God calls us to love are going to be those that aren't like us. Maybe they harm us emotionally. Maybe they're those people that get under our skin. So who threatens you? Question for you this morning is, who do you have a hard time being in the same room with? Who who has hurt you emotionally in the past? Who hates you because of the way you think and what you believe? Who do you most vehemently disagree with in life? Maybe it's a parent who's emotionally abandoned you. Maybe they wounded you deeply with their words early in your life. Words that you can't forget. Words like you always screw up. Or you'll never amount to anything. Or I wish you'd stop eating so much. Or I don't love you anymore. Words that I heard from my father. Maybe it's your spouse who rubs you the wrong way. They never seem to pay attention to your needs. It seems like they're always, that you're always taking the initiative. In all areas of life, they never pitch in where needed. They're not considerate, and sometimes they're just plain mean. And sometimes you find yourself daydreaming about what life would look like without them. Maybe it's a certain political group for you. You hate the way that they think about life and the culture. You hate the way they promote their agenda, and you hate the way they do it. 
You hate that they can't just see as clearly as you can on certain subjects. You wish that they just disappear completely. Maybe it's the awkward person you run into at the office or at the park. The, the person who makes you feel uncomfortable because they kind of lack social skill, skill and emotional maturity. They, they take a ton of energy to relate with and talk with and it's normally uncomfortable conversation and you hate running into them and you wish they weren't a part of your life. Simple mundane relationships, relationships that we experience in our everyday life. You and I tend to love those who can return the favor. Those who are attractive, those who are lovely. It's easy to be friends with those who we like, those who are like us. It's easy to pray for someone when you want to get to know them and find favor with them. But what would it look like for us to love and to pray for those who have nothing to offer us? To love and to pray for those who can't help you along your path. Those who would take your time and offer no benefit back. Those who make you angry. Look, when someone says something nice about you, it's easy to like them. But what about the person who slanders you? Who speaks bad of you? Who smears your name? Jesus is asking us to love those people and to pray for them. Jesus calls us to give up our defensiveness and to love those who rub us the wrong way. To love those we're in opposition to. Yet you and I both know that the ideal that Jesus paints is hardly ever the normal experience in life. The ideal and the experience are completely opposite. So how do we close this gap between the ideal that Jesus paints and our normal experiences? Well, it begins by recognizing everything Jesus calls us to in this passage was done perfectly by him. Think about it. Jesus was the one who refused to assert his rights when he was wronged by others. Jesus was the one who turned the other cheek. He was the one who gave up all that he had. He was the one who walked the extra mile. He gave generously of himself. Jesus is the one who truly loved his enemies. You should know this, that the word used for enemies here in verses 43 and 44 is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul uses the same words in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, except this time the word is used to refer to you, to you, the enemy of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Look, Jesus is not asking his disciples to do anything that God himself has not been doing on a daily basis throughout history and doing it with great generosity. The God of creation is the God who loves enemies. And you and I were enemies of God, rightfully deserving his judgment. But God loves his enemies. He loves you and he loves me. And we love in the way we ourselves have been loved. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. You love others in the way you yourself have been loved. We'll love others in the same way that we believe we've been loved by God. And that's an interesting thought. Because I wonder how you believe God loves you. It manifests itself in the way that you relate to and treat other people. Would someone conclude that you've been deeply loved by God if they saw the way that you relate with other people? Look, it reminds me of Elizabeth Elliot, who had a husband named Jim. And in 1956, Jim, four of his friends decided they wanted to move to Ecuador in order to bring the gospel of Christ to a tribe of Indians called the Aka. 
And the tribe had never had contact with the outside world at this point in history. And out of love for these natives, Jim Elliott and his friends decided to move in and live among them and share the love of Jesus with this tribe. And Elliot and his friends began making contact with the natives by airplane. They would drop gifts and they would use a loudspeaker to communicate with them. And eventually they moved closer to the natives and they actually made contact. And they were approached by a small group of natives at one point. And uh, there's a book written about this and even a movie that was made. And at one point even gave one of the natives a ride on their airplane, which would have been an exciting thing, I would imagine. But eventually they decided to make deeper contact with the natives. And they lived among them. And on January 8, 1956, Elliot's body was found downstream with arrows in his torso. The Aka had murdered him and his four friends, not trusting their intentions. And years later, Elizabeth Elliot returned to the tribe who'd taken her husband's life to a group of people who could have legitimately been labeled her enemies. And in 1958, she wrote a letter to two of the other wives whose husbands were also killed. And a portion of the letter reads this way. I've now met four of the seven men who killed our husbands. It's a very strange thing thus to find oneself between two very remote sides of a story. To us, it meant everything in life and continues to mean that. And to these simple, laughing, carefree people, killing five men was little more than routine And they probably have nearly forgotten about it by now. Look, Elizabeth Elliot continued to love these natives and have a relationship with them despite what they did to her husband, despite how they had ruined her life in so many ways. There's even a picture of her giving one of these natives a haircut, cutting the hair of a man who took her husband's life. Now, what in the world would make a wife do something like that? What could make you and I do something like that? The only thing that is powerful enough to move us to that kind of love for people that we naturally want to hate is this, believing more deeply that Jesus came to love those who hated him. Jesus came to love those who hated him. Jesus came for his enemies. And you know who that is? It's you. And it's me. He came to love us, to lay down his life for us. And as we begin to understand and believe that Jesus came for us, even when we were enemies, that he gave up his rights for us, it's only then that we're going to have any hope of experiencing the ideal that Jesus gives us in this passage. While you were an enemy, Jesus came for you. And that's amazing love. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we stop and thank you, praise you for the amazing love that we have received because you decided to take on flesh, to live in this world and to love your enemies. We pray this morning that as we consider your call to love others, that we would find the power to do just that as we embrace and deeply believe your love for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.